All right, good morning, Two Cities Church. How's everybody doing? All right, I see you in the lobby. Welcome online. In here, guys, look around. It's crowded, it's packed. Do you know that we have a Saturday night service? Look to your neighbor and say, we have a Saturday night service and you should go. That's right, no. Guys, we need you. I mean, if you could go to Saturday night, like I am just asking you, okay? I'm not gonna beg, don't make me beg, okay? I'm asking if you would consider that. Here's why, guys, look, this service is packed. It's overflowing in the lobby. Uh, and, and I tell you to go to Sunday night, but Sunday night is packed and 150 college students are coming here next week. So guys, we're just, it's exciting. Yeah, clap for the, clap. Yeah, yeah, other people should move to Saturday night. That's what you're thinking. Other people, yeah, 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 not you. Ha, 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 yes, okay. Um, so guys, here's the thing. We've had an incredibly busy weekend. Look at these pictures. Uh, if you're new, let me tell you about The Weekender, okay? Uh, the Weekender is so significant. It's so important. It's so impactful. It strengthens our volunteers. It encourages our staff. It invigorates our groups. It strengthens our values. Uh, it, it really is a place for you to believe and belong. And so, look, we do nine of these a year. We just had 70 people go through this. And I know what you're thinking. If you've, done, if you've been with us for a while, here's what you're thinking. You're uh, Kyle, or if you've been to other churches and you're new here, you go, Kyle, I know what The Weekender is. Ha ha, it's a theology class. It's like, no, it's not a theology class. Though we'll teach you theology. Then you go, no, I know what this is. This is about being a member, isn't it? Well, no, you can be a member afterwards. You can prove through that. But it's not about being a member. Some of you go, I know what it is. It's a connections class. Ha ha. It's about getting in a group and on a serving team. Well, yeah, you can do that too, but it's much more than that. It's about enfolding and engrafting you into the life of our church. Look, I don't know how to say this. Let me try to say this in the most humble, spirit-filled, Christ-centered, winsome way that I know how to say it, okay? If you're here and you're a seeker and you're a skeptic and you're checking out Christianity, you're welcome for as long as you wanna be here, okay? Uh, and, but if you're here and you're a Christian and your plan is just to consume, get free childcare, sing some songs, hear a sermon, we're not the church for you. We don't have, come back when we get in the new building, okay? <laughs> we don't have room for you right now. We need, we cannot have takers, we need givers. And so if you just have decided, how do I, I mean this the nicest way possible. If you have just decided that you're never gonna come to our weekender because you're never really gonna get connected, then I lovingly say we're not the church for you. Because when we look at the gospel of Mark, we see a high commitment culture we see all of the disciples being all in with their time, talent, treasure, and we, need, we wanna take as many people with us. Here's why, because look at these pictures, guys. Here's the 13 acres we have downtown. We are moving some dirt around there. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. Guys, we are doing demolition. We are moving enormous amounts of dirt. We have removed 50% of the kudzu in two weeks. And guess what, guys? We found 15 copperhead snakes. That's right, we're about to be a church handling, a snake handling church. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm not going to the weekender. Okay, great. Uh, guys, uh, when you see it, think of this. Think, we are preparing the property for the building. Uh, there's two things that need to be prepared for this building. First is the property, right? Because we're building a 50,000 square foot, you know, you've heard it. 1,200 plus seat auditorium where we're gonna just, it's gonna be a home and a hub for ministry. We're super excited. But the property needs prepared, that's obvious. Move the dirt, put in the sewage or the, the sewer lines and do all that stuff that you have to do and build the foundations and whatever. Uh, that's because you have to prepare the property for the building. But I also think not, not just that we have to prepare the property, we need to prepare the people, us. Uh, I just wanna use this next year as a time to call us up. It's the same way I felt when I've, I've had three kids. Every time I had a kid, every time my wife got pregnant, I'm just like, grow up, Kyle. More responsibility. It's time to grow up. You need to mature in these areas. And I would just say the same thing to us as a church. Well, we need to be the godliest, humblest, most prayerfulest, most evangelistic versions of ourselves going into this building, which is why we're in the Gospel of Mark. 
So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into the gospel of Mark. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray that you would use the gospel of Mark to invigorate us, to energize us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to challenge us. As we look at the man, Jesus Christ, and we look at his ministry and his message and his mission, Lord. Lord, what, are, what we're praying over the next year is that you would do something deeply in us before you do something through us as we get in this new building. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can type to or turn to Mark 135. If you're new, great time to be new. We are in week two of a 20-week series going all the way through the gospel of Mark. We've been looking at Jesus Christ and focusing on his life. I don't know if you've seen the movie 1917. Okay, it's a fascinating movie. One of the things that made 1917 such a fascinating movie, and, and you'll see this if you watch it, is it's a single camera shot the whole time. You're like, how did they do that? I don't know. But it's one camera following one guy for like two hours. You're like, that's unbelievable. Well, that's exactly what's happening in the Gospel of Mark. It's one camera lens on Jesus following him the whole time. We saw he had a busy first few weeks of ministry, right? He gets baptized, big deal. Uh, John the Baptist preaches about him, big deal. Uh, he goes out into the desert, he's tempted for 40 days, big deal. Um, he goes, starts his preaching ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand, preaches all that. He calls four of his first disciples, and then if you remember, you can look at verse like 32, 33, and 34 in Mark 1. Jesus ends with a, after a very busy day, he ends with a very busy night of healing a bunch of people late into the night. They go away, he goes to sleep, and now in verse 35, we see what happens the next day. Look here. In Mark 1.35, it says this, and rising very early in the morning. Okay, some of you, this, the reason you're at the 11 a.m. service is because you arise around 10 a.m., okay? <laughs> this is earlier than that, okay? It says rising very early in the morning. That's the first clue that it was early. While it was still dark, okay? So before the sun rises, Jesus, this is important, he gets up, he gets out, he gets alone, right? That would be a good thing for you to do. I need to get up, I need to wake up, I need to get out of my bed, and I need to get alone. Okay, good. It says this, and he departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, we don't know how long he prayed, but he prayed long enough for this to happen. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. So he prays long enough for other people to get up, look for him, not find him, then eventually find him, and kind of be upset with him. That's what you hear here. Look at verse 37. And they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. So here's what I want us to see. Jesus had priorities. You have priorities. Here's how you know what your priorities are. Your priorities are the things you still do when you're busy. That's the definition of a priority, right? I'm guessing for all of you, eating is still a priority, right? No matter how busy you get. For Jesus, he had three priorities. You can memorize these. You can write them down if you need to, but Jesus' three priorities are the three priorities that, well, anybody should have if they're following Christ. His priorities were God, his word and the souls of men. You're like, well, that sounds about right. Yeah, well, those, that's because those are the only three things that would last forever. So Jesus gets up, he goes out, he prays. Now, here's what Jesus understood that maybe we need to understand. That prayer is the place of dependence. Prayer is the place of intimacy. Prayer is the place of power, right? I, I don't know if there's any greater motivation for me to pray or for you to pray than that the sinless son of God needed to pray, right? So, like, and he's very, very busy, right? Would anyone wanna raise their hand and go, I'm busier than Jesus, I don't think so. Would anyone want to go, my to-do list is a little bit more important. Could you imagine Jesus' to-do list? Fight the devil for 40 days in temptation, check. Save the world, check, right? Live with 12 guys for three years, you know? Yeah, not great, right? This is, this is what he was doing now. He, so he was a very busy guy and he still finds time, okay? What slips in your life when you're busy, right? What slips? I know for me, it's like my car starts looking like a mess, our bedroom starts looking like a mess, 
I'm not sleeping like I should. I'm not spending time with my family like I should. I'm not running like I should. I'm not eating healthy like I should. Things flip. What we see for Jesus is he has a priority of prayer because I said it earlier, because he sees prayer as the place of dependence and prayer, prayer as the place of strength. Now, because a lot of times we look at Jesus' ministry and we go, well, that was a great ministry. And I bet if I was the you know, son of God, I'd have a ministry like that too. Well, maybe his ministry just wasn't because of his status. Maybe it was because he actually went to God to get refueled and refreshed. Where do you go to get refueled and refreshed? Uh, I'm not saying you go to all these bad places. Most people go to their iPad and mindlessly scroll. If you're an introvert, you go get time alone, right? If you're an extrovert, you spend time with, with others, you know? If you like movies, you watch movies. If you like to eat, you eat, you do whatever. If, you're, if you like to nap, you nap. People do a lot of different things to kind of get refreshed and refueled. When was the last time you had 15 minutes, 30 minutes, and just said to yourself, I could do anything with this time. I think I'm gonna pray. It almost sounds strange in our culture to think that way, right? Like, I don't know, say your spouse is gone and they're gonna be gone for two hours at night. Instead of watching the Netflix shows they don't wanna watch, okay? You could say, well, what if I prayed for 30 minutes? I mean, I think we can learn two things. We need to move on because we need to see Jesus' ministry. But I think we can learn two things from Jesus' prayer life. Number one is you need a time. Number two is you need a place. So simple. When is the time that you pray? Just so you know, for most Christians throughout almost all of church history, it needed to be early in the morning. Now, there are some Christians who they, they, they can find it at another time of the day. There are some Christians who are night owls and do it at night, but I'm just telling you, church history testifies to getting up early. So for me, it's right up, as soon as I get up. Now, I knew normally check my phone briefly. I make myself a cup of coffee. And then this time of year, I go right on my front porch. I need a time and I need a place. Where is your place? Is it a chair? Is it a room in the house? Is it a desk? Where, where, where do you do this? Now, here's, here's my challenge to two cities. What if we all, what if we just did this? What if we all turned our cars into portable prayer closets on wheels? And we just decided if we were by ourselves, not with our kids, not with our wife or, or husband, if we're by ourselves and we're in the car, we're not gonna listen to podcasts, we're not gonna make phone calls, uh, we're not going to listen to music, we're going to pray. Could you imagine that? Every time you see like one of those two cities magnets, you drive by hoping they're praying. And you give them like, are you praying? You know, I'm praying, right? <laughs> I mean, but, but most of us have five, 10, 15, 20 minute commutes. What if you just did it to your commute to and from work? All of a sudden you add 30 or 40 minutes of prayer back into your life. Well, look what happens when Jesus prays. Look at verse 37. Verse 37 says this, or verse 38. And he said to them, remember they, they, they find him and they say like, hey Jesus, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So here's what happens. Imagine this. This would be unbelievably tempting, I think, to any of us. The disciples find Jesus and they go, dude, you're super popular. Everybody loves you here. You should stay here. Everybody's bringing their friends and their families and their neighbors. You're a local celebrity. You're a local hero. Why don't you just stay here? But because of prayer, here's the other thing prayer does. So prayer is intimacy, prayer is power, prayer is clarity, right? Communion with Christ leads to clarity. Some of you need clarity. You need clarity about your kids, right? You need clarity on your business. You need clarity on your struggle with sin. You need clarity on your finances. Clarity comes out of communion with Christ. Jesus realizes, wait a second, I didn't come to heal. Now he heals as a secondarily, but he says, look, what did he come to do? I came to preach, right? Jesus understood he came to preach the kingdom and purchase the kingdom. That's it. I came to preach the kingdom of God, 
with my, with my mouth, and I came to purchase the kingdom of God with my life at the cross. It's like, okay, well, he understood his ministry there. Here's what we have to understand here. And, and this will make the whole book of Mark and all of the gospels come, come hopefully more alive to you. Jesus cares more about forever needs than felt needs. Now he cares about felt needs. We're gonna see he's gonna heal a leper and he's gonna heal a paralytic. He's gonna, he's gonna always help all these different people, right? But he cares more about forever needs than felt needs. He cares more about ultimate needs than what might be your obvious need. Right, you know your obvious needs. You know, you, I need more money, that's an obvious need. An ultimate need is I, I need to be forgiven. I need to be reconciled to God. I need to be back in relation with God. Jesus cares more about spiritual needs than temporal needs. So here's, here's why I'm spending time on this. Because the rest of the book of Mark, we're gonna see miracles. And whenever you see miracles, you might even wanna write this in your Bible. Miracles aren't the point, dot, 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 they are pointers. That's what miracles are. They're not the point. They're pointers. So the reason that he does miracles is to authenticate the message. The reason he does miracles is so that people will listen to him and know that he has authority. Miracles are not the point, dot, 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 they are pointers. And so what I wanna to see today, what I want us to see today is three interactions. The first interaction is gonna be with a leper, not a leopard, okay? A leopard is a wild animal. If you see a leopard, run, okay? <laughs> uh, not a leopard, a leper, we'll talk about that. The second one is gonna be with a paralytic and the third one is gonna be with a government official, a tax collector. And what we can learn, and we have to learn, we have to look, you know, Jesus is God in the flesh. We need to look at his life, we need to look at his ministry, and we need to say, I wanna be more like that. So let's learn from Jesus together. Here, here's the first interaction with the leper. It says this, and a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. So leprosy was a horrible disease. It still exists in certain places in the third world countries and there's still leper communities and it's horrible. It's a skin disease. There's about 72 different types of skin diseases under leprosy. If you're interested in like understanding the Bible's take on leprosy, you can read Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14. Leviticus 13 is basically what is leprosy and Leviticus 14 is what do you do if you come in contact with a leper? Uh, but leprosy, um, it was a social death sentence. As soon as you got leprosy, you're like, you'd go to the priest and then if it was real leprosy, they'd say you're, you're isolated. It's hard for us to understand what it's like to be a leper, but, and I hate talking about COVID, okay? But I still do every week, I guess, but, but here we are. But I think, I think COVID is a great way to think about on a very, very small scale, what it must've felt like to be a leper. Because remember the whole, you need to quarantine for 14 days. You need to get your, you need to tell everybody that you tested positive. You need to keep your social distance, right? And you heard a lot of sad stories whether it was we can't see grandma in the nursing home, she's isolated for various reasons, or mom has COVID and so she's gonna be in the master bedroom and the kids aren't gonna interact with her for two weeks. And we just saw what happens with six feet in two weeks and how heartbreaking that was. Well, the leopard, it wasn't six feet, I think it was 50 cubits. And, and it wasn't for two weeks, it was the rest of your life. And it wasn't tell people you're positive, it was yell unclean if you come near anyone. So now leprosy is an image, it's a metaphor, it's a picture of sin because like sin, leprosy spreads, or we could say like leprosy, sin spreads. See what would happen is you get leprosy on one area, you go, oh no, this is gonna infect and affect my whole life. And that's what sin does. If you don't deal with sin, if you don't repent of sin, sin doesn't stay small, obviously. Sin grows bigger. Almost every person that I've ever met that got caught in some type of sin, guess what? They've been doing that sin for years. 
almost every time they've been doing it for years. And the story's almost always the same. I thought the sin would stay small. I thought I'd be able to manage it, but it spreads. Almost every time generational sin happens, which is a big idea in the Old Testament, especially, generational sin. It's like, my kids struggle with materialism. Why? Because mom and dad never repented of it. My kids struggle with overeating. Why? Because mom and dad never repented of it. My kids struggle with alcoholism. Why? Because mom and dad never repented of it. My kids idolize entertainment and sports. Why? Because mom and dad never repented of it. But then it isolates you. So, so see this? It spreads, and then it isolates you. So that's what sin does. Sin, sin wants to have a man or woman by himself or herself. And the deeper you get into sin, the more you isolate yourself. One, because you'll need more extended time in that sin to get the same result. Number two, you will be very unlikely to go to community group, to go through a weekender, or to be known by anyone else because you don't want this dimension of your life to be seen. But for our purposes and the point of this passage, what sin is like is it is that which, just like leprosy, it is that which defiles us and makes us unclean. So there's many things that sin does to us, okay? The first thing that sin does to you is it makes you guilty, and that's probably what you heard. You've been in church, you hear like, you sinned, and so, you know, God's mad. You know, and God is gonna punish your sin. And there's a real place called hell where you will go if you don't repent. And you are under the wrath of God, and you go, well, that was very clear, thank you, I understand that. So, so sin makes me guilty. But there's a second thing that we don't talk about that's really pastorally helpful, and it's that sin makes you dirty. Right? This is why men and women who look at pornography will often talk about needing to take a shower afterwards. They'll look at pornography, they'll feel like they need to take a shower, or they'll look at pornography and they'll feel like they need to clean their room. Or they'll feel like they need to like organize their house. And what it is, is it's their soul telling their body, something's not right, this is not clean. It's also very pastorally helpful because sometimes you're, you feel dirty because of something you've done. Other times you feel dirty because of something someone did to you. You were a victim, there was trauma, your ex whatever, your dad, your uncle, your grandfather. And so what's so important when you understand the gospel is that Jesus doesn't just forgive us from sin, he cleanses us from sin. Both the sin we do and the sin done to us. So that this picture of Christ and the leper is a picture of cleansing. Look what happens here. It says this, verse 41. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. So Jesus has something that I want us all to grow in. First and foremost, myself, Jesus has compassion. It's the same word, pity, compassion. Now you can't have compassion if you're just overly busy. You can't have compassion if you're just self-absorbed and self-consumed about self-fulfillment and self-expression and self-actualization. Compassion comes when I see something and then I feel something and then I do something. That's the three moments of compassion. I see, so I have to be awake. And I feel, and a lot of us are afraid to feel. And then because I feel something, I, I respond. See, what, here's what happens with compassion. Compassion is, here's when compassion will happen for you. It can happen, it can happen when you see a certain homeless person. It can, it, it can happen when you see a, a, disabled, a disabled person, it doesn't matter. You see somebody, and here's what you do. You recognize the humanity of that person. And you place yourself, and you say, what if I was them? 
That's the beginning of compassion. And humans can uniquely do this. It's the only reason we watch movies. Movies, they wouldn't make any sense. We wouldn't be able to watch them. Think about it, we pay to watch movies and we watch an enormous amount of streaming services. Why? Because what you're, why do you get scared at a scary movie? Because you place yourself there. And you feel the emotions of that person as they're in the house alone. Why do we cry at the end of certain movies when certain things happen? Because you think, what if that was me? What if I lost my husband? And it emotionally impacts you. I, I saw this with, with my, my own family. Um, just a picture of compassion, a small picture of compassion is uh, my eight-year-old son, I can't even remember, this was a while ago, he did something and we had to take away a privilege. It was, you know, it's either dessert or TV usually. You know, it's like, we just, we just said, William, we're taking this away for a day or two. I can't remember what it was. And he was fine with it because he actually knew what he did was wrong, okay? But then we're, t we're telling him this, this is over at the dinner table, and my five-year-old son starts crying. Like, what's going on? Like, Elon, what's going on? Five-year-old, he goes, I feel bad for William. <laughs> And what he was feeling for a moment is he felt compassion. Even that's, that's, that's the power of this. We can feel this. Sometimes we forget to feel this, but a five-year-old can feel this. My five-year-old son looked at my eight-year-old son and said, that's really sad to not be able to watch TV for two days. <laughs> <laughs> what Jesus does is Jesus has compassion on this man. Look what he does. It says he touched him. Now, do you know that Jesus doesn't always need to touch people to heal them? Jesus, there's times where people come and they say, hey, listen. My friend, my servant, my daughter is in a different place and she's sick. And Jesus will just say, go home, she's well. It's like, okay, so you didn't even need to be in the same place. You didn't even need to be in the same town. So why does Jesus touch the leper? Jesus touches the leper because the leper needed touch. Because the leper, it had been months, maybe it had been years, and nobody touches a leper. As soon as you're a leper, you're isolated. You haven't had human touch. You haven't had a hug. You haven't had a handshake. You haven't had an arm around your shoulder in years. Now, here's what I want us to learn from this. This is really important. And it would be shocking if you're a Jew reading this, because here's what Jesus does. He breaks the ceremonial rules of the day. Let me say it a couple different ways. He breaks the social norms of the day. He does what is unsafe. He does what is unacceptable. And let me just tell you, if you are going to have any impact meaningfully for Christ, you're going to have to cross the line. And I don't even know what that means for each of you, right? But so let me tell you one line that we're gonna have to cross. That invisible line that you've been told your whole life, especially if you're over 40, that we don't talk about religion and politics. It's like, well, sorry. We're gonna have to talk about these things because they're the most important. Now, I know this is easy for me to talk about because it's like, you know, I, what I wanna talk to you about right now is you taking some risks and crossing the line and maybe even breaking some quote-unquote rules at work occasionally at the right time in a winsome way to share Christ. And I know you look at me and you go, well, that's easy for you, Kyle. You work at a church. <laughs> and we think all of our staff are Christian. We're pretty sure. No, they, they are, though. Um, but but uh, here's what I mean by this. And, and a friend of mine told me this. A friend of mine who's in our church and he's in the business world. He said, Kyle, I'm on these Skype calls. I'm on these Zoom calls. He said, and we're talking all business and guys get off and I end up on a Skype call with one or two guys and it gets personal. He says, and every once in a while, a guy will open up and say, dude, my marriage is just, we're going through a divorce. He said, or, or he, one guy he knows, the guy said, my son's really sick. Young son, real sick. And here's what he said to me. He goes, Kyle, I cannot be helpful unless I'm explicitly Christian. 
good luck isn't helpful. A generic spiritual answer isn't helpful. He says, Kyle, I have to decide in that moment. I'm crossing the line. I'm doing something I shouldn't do. I'm breaking the social norms. I don't know how he's going to respond, but I can't be useful unless I do this. Here's what we learn from Jesus, and I hope we embrace this as a church culture. Jesus moves toward the mess. Now, most of us have designed our entire lives to avoid the mess. The places in the city that we go, the houses that we buy, the schools we send our kids to, fair enough. Most of us have spent our whole lives avoiding the mess, because what do you do with the mess? Jesus moves toward the mess. The reason that we're building this facility in downtown, it would have been way cheaper, way easier just to go find 15 acres in advance. And we're not against churches that do that. We think it takes all types of churches to reach all types of people. But we just looked at the center of downtown and we just saw an under-resourced and up-and-coming area. We saw a place with spiritual and financial poverty. And we said, we want to head right into the mess, even though it is messy. So what, look what happens here. Jesus touches the leper. And look what happens in verse 43. Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priests and offer for yourself cleansing, your cleansing, what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So here's what happens. Jesus heals the man and then this is a picture of substitution. Jesus and the man trade places. Do you see that? Now he heals the leper and the leper can go. He can go anywhere. He can go everywhere because the leper tells everyone about Jesus. Jesus can't go anywhere. (laughs) He's now isolated. He's now in desolate places. That was where the leper was. This is the picture of the gospel. Jesus trades places with us. So first we see a leper who comes to Jesus because they have a need. Let me tell you what happens in any ministry in any city, okay? How does the church grow? Like conversion growth, people coming to Christ. I can tell you how it happens. Every year, there are different people who are uniquely suffering and it brings them to Jesus. And that happens every year that we've been in church. Someone got the cancer diagnosis. Someone's marriage is falling apart. Someone's finances are out of whack. Someone's kid is breaking their heart. And God honors it because what happens with the leper is, and sometimes this happens, less and less in America, but sometimes people look at them and say, I need Jesus. But then there, we're gonna see in the second story, there are certain people who can't come to Jesus themselves and they will never come to Jesus unless somebody else brings them, you. I want us to see the story of the paralytic. Here's what it says. And when he returned to Capernaum, that was his headquarters, Jesus' headquarters. After some days, we're in chapter two, verse one. It was reported that he was at home and many were gathered at the door so that there was no room. This is like a Sunday morning two city service, okay? Not even at the door, and people were sitting in the lobby. Look at this. No, I'm kidding. That's it. Okay. Uh, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith. I, I love this story because it's a picture of a guy who couldn't come to Jesus by himself. And it's a picture of four great friends. Wouldn't you love to have friends like this? Wouldn't you love to be a friend like this? 
A couple things I think we can see from this story so far. First of all, these men were aware of other people's needs, especially those close to them. How unaware often are we of the needs of those around us? Because we're self-consumed and we're self-absorbed. It's like, do you, do you know, have you thought at all about how inflation might be affecting people in your community group? Are you aware at all of just anything about anything about the spiritual condition of any of your neighbors or any of your coworkers? Just anything. Have they ever been to church? Are they interested in Jesus? Do they have a spiritual background? We are just so often unaware of the needs around us. These men, they see this man's needs and they don't need to go to Jesus for a miracle, but this man needs it. Here's the second thing I think we see from these four guys, right? It takes four guys to carry this guy. One guy couldn't carry him. It might be because of the distance. Two guys couldn't carry him. I'm assuming three guys couldn't carry him. It took four guys to carry this guy. Here's the principle. Sometimes it takes a team effort to bring one person to Jesus. This is what I've seen. Very rarely does one person just lead another person to Christ who's never had any other Christians in their life. What you normally find is like you meet some guy and Joe leads Bob to Christ. What you realize about Bob is Bob had Christian parents also that had been praying for him, but Bob rebelled. And then you realize actually, you no, know, in, in college, Bob was part of a college ministry on and off. He wasn't super faithful, but there was a guy or two that invested in him there. And then Bob went through some hard times and, and Bob's older brother, who's a strong Christian, walked him through those times and they read some of the Bible together, but Bob wasn't really ready to commit. And then Bob goes to work and Bob meets Joe or whoever. And Joe leads Bob to Christ. And you look back at the whole narrative and you're like, it was a team effort. Now, here's what I love here. It says that their faith, it says that Jesus saw their faith. Do you see this? It doesn't say Jesus heard their faith. We're real good at that. We're real good at Bible studies. We're real good at talking about our faith. We're real good at just having, you know, conversations and doing devotionals and being a holy huddle and all of that. But it doesn't say that Jesus heard their faith. It's that he saw their faith. And this is interesting. When your faith moves you, that moves Jesus. That's what we see here. Jesus has moved when he looks and sees that people's faith moves them. And, and what I love about the story is these four guys, and who knows who they are? I mean, we, we don't even get their names. They're anonymous. But something happened. Now, my guess is one of these four guys, and I don't know at what point they get there, it's super packed, and they want to get to Jesus. And they've already taken their friend a half mile or a mile. And one of them says, can you imagine this? One of them says to the other three guys, what if we rip a hole in this house? <laughs> Right, and the other three guys are like, I don't know, this is not our house, you know? <laughs> right, and, and by the way, these, these, these houses, they had flat roofs. Those roofs were often used as, you know, porches and decks and third spaces, and they did have steps so you could get up to it. But think about it, these guys are like, we are going to go and we are going to rip open this room, this roof. We are gonna create a scene. We are gonna create a mess. This is gonna be expensive. Uh, when, the, when it rips open and everybody looks at us, up at us, it's gonna be unbelievably awkward. But here's what I love here, guys, that they wanna do anything short of sin to get people to Jesus. And that's what we wanna do. We wanna do anything short of sin. We don't wanna sin. But we wanna do anything short of sin to reach people who are far from God. That's the, that's the posture of our church. We want to take personal risks to bring Christ to every relationship. And so that's what these, by the way, that's the story of the history of Christianity. The apostle Paul in every city that he went in, he took risks. 
He, he even at one point did, did things that seemed foolish to his culture. At one point, he shaved his head, which Jews did, never did, to go reach this group. And he's like, I need to become like them. So he shaves his head. Timothy, at one point, to, to reach the Jews, he gets circumcised as a grown man. Some of you go, I'm not that committed. <laughs> he was. I want to show you a picture of George Whitfield. George Whitfield, okay? One of the leaders of the first great awakening, you can see him out there preaching to the crowds. And if you look closely in the tree, you can see a guy with a trumpet blowing because he had lots of critics, okay? You can take the picture down. But what I want to show you is what he did was so unique because he went and he said, guys, we need to go preach outside. I, I, not People aren't going to come to church. I need to go to them. And everyone said, don't, you can't preach outside. They didn't have a Bible verse. They just said, you're not allowed to preach outside. He's like, why not? So he built this little stand that he would carry with him everywhere and he would just take it outside and he would stand and he would preach. And he got very emotional when he would preach. And they said, you, don't, you can't get emotional when you preach. And he would tell lots of stories. And they would say, don't tell stories when you preach. And, and, and then he, he could call people Christian instead of Baptist and Methodist and Lutheran. And that was a big deal back then. I mean, this, the story of the gospel advancing is people taking risks. This is why we love missionaries. Because missionaries, what does a missionary do? A missionary has compassion on a people they've never met. They're like, well, how would you like to live in North Africa and have no access to the gospel? And you think about that for a while and you might get emotional and you might say, if I was in North Africa and I wanted access to the gospel, I would want someone to come and tell me it. Okay, well, it's time to move toward the mess. It's time to learn a language. It's time to cross an ocean. It's time to do things that look unbelievably foolish. Do you know how hard it is for people to become missionaries in large part because they have to tell the grandparents? They're, they, you know what they're saying to the grandparents? I gotta rip the roof off the house. You're not gonna see your grandkids for a decade. And it's very, very hard. But I want you to see what happens. Jesus looks at this man who finally gets to him. He doesn't rebuke them for ripping the hole. He says this, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Interesting, Jesus, again, deals with his deepest need, not his deepest desire. We live in a society that's very aware of our deepest desires. We're told to think about those all the time. He, Jesus knows his deepest desire is to have his legs healed. His deepest need is to have his sins forgiven. So he says, I forgive you. Now, this is interesting. You can all, it's like, this is one of Jesus' what we call indirect claims of deity. There are direct claims of deity when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That's a direct claim to deity. There are indirect claims to deity where Jesus says, I forgive you. It's like, well, Jesus can forgive all sin because all sin is ultimately against him, right? That's the reason he can forgive sin. All sin is cosmic treason. All sin is divine vandalism. There's a horizontal component of sin, but there's a vertical component. Like, I mean... You can only forgive sin if it's against you. Like, imagine we walked out in the parking lot, there was two guys fighting, and one guy punches the other guy right for no reason across the face, and the guy falls to the ground, and I walk over to the guy who punched him, and I say, I forgive you. <laughs> I mean, it would make no sense. We're laughing because you're like, it doesn't make sense. Like, who are you? You don't get that. You're not even part of this. The reason that Jesus can forgive is because all sin is ultimately against him. So look what happens here. He forgives, and he, he of course, there's always the Scribes and Pharisees there, look at verse six. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right, they understand that. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? 
And then he asks this, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk? The answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, because you can't prove it. It's easy to say your, your sins are forgiven, go. Your sins are forgiven, go. It's like, well, did, did it work? Did it not work? I don't know. But if I say, get up and walk, and it doesn't work, it'll be obvious. So look what happens. But that you may know that the Son of Man, verse 10, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus heals the man, and then he has one more interaction. So first he deals with the leper, then the paralytic, now a tax collector. Look at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. But what you'll notice is Jesus is never as concerned with the crowd as he is with the individual. Here's what happens. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And if you were a good Jew, you read this, and you're like, no, not a tax collector. And he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now we can't, I don't even have time to get into how much the Jews hated tax collectors. They hated them for many, many reasons. One, they often overtaxed them, but, but also they worked for the government. Uh, try, try to bring this down for us today. Okay, this would be like if Jesus Christ, if this is written today, Jesus Christ comes to you know, Washington, D.C., and it says he's walking by the Capitol, and there he sees Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> oh, yeah. And AOC. <laughs> and he says to them, follow me. And we all go, no! No! <laughs> And going a little farther, you know, going a little farther, we got to pick up both teams. He, he sees Mitch McConnell, you know, and Mitch McConnell's hanging out with Ron DeSantis. And Jesus looks at them and says, follow me. No, you know, the, the, the whole idea here is these were people that people had put in certain categories, had very strong opinions about. And the picture here is that Jesus can change anyone's life. Jesus can change, you know, your past doesn't have to define you. And so what he does is he calls Levi, who also in another gospel is called Matthew. Look at this, verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And if you look at verse 15, it says they reclined. That's the word like, it's not just the word to like sit down and eat. It's the word to like relax, party, and have a good time. It's almost like you look through the window and Jesus is having a drink, eating a meal, telling a joke <laughs> or laughing at a joke with the tax collectors. Like that's the picture. Like he is having a good time spending time with sinners because Jesus understands something that he teaches us that we're to be in the world, but not of the world, right? Christians are like ships, okay? A ship is not meant to be on land. It's meant to be in the water that is the world. But what ruins a ship is if the water gets in the boat. And so it's that tension that I need to be in the world, but not of it. Now, look what he says here. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, do you see the two teams? There's always two teams, right? There's like, when you, if you watch West Side Story, there was the jets and there was the sharks, right? There are people who love the mountains. There are people who love the beach. There are people who love Starbucks coffee. There are people who think Dunkin' Donuts is real coffee. And these are, the, you know... <laughs> said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So here's what's happening. On one side, you have the scribes and the Pharisees, and they are religious, okay? Religious people, okay? On the other side, you have the tax collectors and sinners. Guess what? The rebellious people don't like the religious people. Why don't rebellious people like religious people? Well, they look at religious people, and they think, eh, you're just, you're moralistic. 
you're conservative, you're primitive, you're old school, you're legalistic, you're rule following. That's how the rebellious people look at the religious people. And the religious people, they look at the rebellious people and they say, well, you're acting crazy, you're acting foolish, you're liberal, you're relativistic, you're progressive, you're alternative. Well, here's the other interesting thing about religious people science. Religious people are often jealous of rebellious people. Did you know that Nietzsche said that most people who act like they're moral are just cowards? They're too afraid to be bad. And they look at other people and they say, I don't have the courage to do that. I'd like to do that. I'd like to give it to those things, but I don't want to upset my parents. It's not that I'm a good person. It's that I'm afraid to be bad. You have the rebellious and you have the religious, and they both don't understand Jesus. And Jesus moves toward the rebellious. He actually moves toward the religious too, but every time he moves toward the rebellious, the religious people get upset. Do you see that? Look what he says in verse 17. He tries to, he says, and when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, a doctor, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The problem with the Pharisees and the scribes is the same problem that happens to most Christians after they've been in a church for about three to five years they become, they struggle the most with the sin that's hardest to see, the sin of self-righteousness. What happens in churches is churches, you'll see this all the time, churches will talk about sins that other people struggle with. They will preach repentance, but they will not practice repentance. Self-righteousness is when you think that you're better than other people. Self-righteousness is when you think it's your job to look like Jesus instead of to look like somebody who needs Jesus. Self-righteousness is when you think you've arrived, you have nothing to learn, when you think that you're above people, when you forget that we're all sinners who need God's grace, and we never graduate, ever, no matter how much Bible we know, church we've been to, good deeds we've done, we never graduate from being a sinner who needs God's grace. Now listen, the world has its own version of self-righteousness. I call it secular self-righteousness, right? It, it's, it's I'm a good person, and I'm for the current thing and I shop at Whole Foods, and I recycle everything, and I ride my bike everywhere, and when I walk my large dogs outside alone, I wear a mask. <laughs> and so should you. <laughs> secular self-righteousness. Jesus says, I can't deal with those people. I can't deal with the secular self-righteous, and I can't deal with the church self-righteous because you have to know you're sick and you have to be willing to go to the doctor. Now here's the truth, most people don't wanna to go to the doctor, right? Most men over 40 never go to the doctor. As I'm saying it right now, some of you wives are hitting your husband. I told you, it's been 15 years since your colonoscopy. <laughs> well, why don't men, you're like, are we talking about this? <laughs> um, but why don't men wanna get a colonoscopy? Even when they should, why don't men wanna, I'm picking on the men specifically, they don't wanna get blood work. They don't wanna have a general physician that they see on a regular basis. We know why men don't want to, because they don't wanna know what's wrong. They would rather just, well, let's just deal with it. I don't wanna go and have somebody tell me my cholesterol's high, or it's revealed that I drink too much. My liver levels are real high. I don't want that stuff. But I think the real reason that men don't wanna do that is they don't know, they're afraid they're gonna go and it's gonna be too late, and they don't wanna know that. I'm gonna have something and it's, there's not gonna be a cure and it's going to be too late. The, the thing about coming to Jesus, the great physician, the great doctor, is that 
in this life, it's never too late, and there's always a cure. The cure for the sin and sickness of our soul is forgiveness. This is why Jesus says, I forgive you, right? Forgiveness is the greatest miracle, right? Because it deals with the greatest need, because it came at the greatest cost, and because it lasts the longest. You know the paralytic's gonna die. The leper's going to die. But what they, what lasts on the other side of that is forgiveness. So as we see these stories of Jesus moving toward people, I just wanna ask you, would you be part of what we're trying to do in this church, which is we are trying to move toward the mess and we're trying to do anything short of sin to reach people far from God, we are. And we're trying to take, it's hard, we're trying to take personal risks to bring Christ to every relationship. And let me tell you why we're doing it, because here's what I think happened when the paralytic died. Years later, the paralytic dies, and the paralytic gets to heaven, and he thanks God, and he thanks Jesus, and as soon as he thanks God and he thanks Jesus, he says, you know what? There's four guys I have to see. Because there's two reasons, think about this with me. There are two reasons the paralytic's in heaven. Now we sing and we celebrate the first reason. It's the sufficiency of Christ, that's why. It's what Christ did for that paralytic in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and to that we say amen. That's the first reason the paralytic's in heaven. Do you wanna know the second reason? Those four guys. Who is going to be in heaven because you took personal risks to bring Christ to every relationship? Who's gonna be in heaven because you said, you know what, I had to cross the line at work. I had to get a little awkward with my neighbor. I had to do something that I was scared to do, but this person's in heaven because I made that decision. You know, when Billy Graham died, that great evangelist, there was a big cartoon that went out the week after he died. And it was a picture of Billy, imagine this, Billy at the gates of heaven. And it was St. Peter there. And St. Peter's there, and it's this picture. You can just see Billy. All he can see is St. Peter. He can't see what's behind him. And St. Peter says to Billy, Billy, welcome home. There's a lot of people who want to say thank you. And the line just goes forever and ever and ever and ever. Who do you want to take to heaven with you? I heard a story of a dad. He said to his family, he told his kids from a young age, he would often say to his family, I'd like us all to go to heaven together. Who will be in heaven because of by grace decisions that you made on earth? Let's pray for that. Lord, we pray for so much grace. It's gonna take a lot of grace to not act like normal people do. It's gonna take a lot of grace to move toward the mess. It's gonna take a lot of grace to take risks that seem foolish in the moment. But I pray you would just give us a vision. We, we are, by grace, we're able to see the future by vision, Lord. And you would just give us a picture. We're all gonna be in heaven in 100 years, those of us who trusted Christ. We think about being in heaven and walking around, we just want, we know that anybody's in heaven for one reason alone, Christ. But humanly speaking, we know that people also end up in heaven because other people are faithful to share the gospel, Lord. Would you find us faithful, Lord? Would you find us fruitful? Would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.